Hello, and welcome to Alex Listens, a podcast about philosophy and politics and race and mental health. Today, I sat down with Dr. Raymond Tallis, a philosopher, a poet, a social critic, a novelist, a clinical neuroscientist, and a doctor, a physician. We spoke about pretty much all of these things. Um, I guess we began by talking about one of Ray's primary interests, free will. What is it? Where is it? How do we have it? Do we have it at all? Um, We also spoke about the power and limitations of science as a mechanism for discovering new things, but, you know, as also a mechanism that is so ambitious that it can try and answer questions that, you know, it appears that it can't or will struggle to answer. We also spoke about the ways in which philosophy can almost overextend its utility. For example, if we are under moments of extreme pressure, like... Ray was a doctor, and while he was a doctor, you know, there were medical emergencies. Um, If you've studied ethics in philosophy, are you going to be able to actually draw from these ethical things that you've learnt in times of emergency, in split-moment decisions? Um, Do you you have time to think about what Hegel said, or what Kant said, or what Jeremy Bentham said? These are the kinds of things that we spoke about. so yeah, it was a wide-ranging and an extremely insightful and an, and an extremely fun interview. And I'm very thankful that Ray took the time to sit down with me and chat about all of these things all the way over in the UK. Before I play the interview, some very brief things to mention. Um, first of all, if you're enjoying my podcast or any of the other projects that I do, feel free to support it on Patreon. Uh, it will mean that I can afford to keep making episodes, interviewing different people, researching different topics, and so on. Um, if you'd like to support the podcast, you know, there's Patreon, there's, there'll be a link in the bio, otherwise you can support me on PayPal, and there'll also be a link in the bio of this episode. The second thing that I'll mention is that I'm running a beginner's philosophy course, which is called Beginner's Philosophy with Alex. It's going to be running in Melbourne, um, in North Fitzroy, Uh, from the end of June until the beginning of August. It will go for six weeks and it will cover six different topics. Um, It's also going to be running online. Um, And so you should go to my website. There'll be a link in my bio as well to this if you're interested in enrolling. It's a pay-what-you-can-afford course. Uh, It's going to be the second time that I've run it and it's so much fun. And it seems like people who did the course in the last time it ran were able to take a lot from it. Um, So if that sounds like something you're interested in, consider enrolling. There are a few spots left. It's nearly full. Um, Thank you to everyone who's enrolled. And yeah, I think that's pretty much all I needed to say. I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, I'm I'm here with Raymond Tallis, who's joining me from very far away. Thank you for your time, Ray. It's a pleasure. Um, and so in the introduction for this episode, I will have given you uh, some kind of biography or context. But one thing that I like to do is ask people how they will... Um, how they would describe themselves to people who, who don't know them. So I guess, who, who are you, Ray? Well, for 40 years of my life, most of my waking hours were spent being a doctor. Um, So in in that sense, I suppose you could say I'm a doctor. I'm, of course, a husband and a father, things that matter to me enormously. 
and the remainder of my waking hours have been spent in thinking in some way or another, sometimes with fiction, uh, sometimes poetry, sometimes essays, but mostly in terms of publications uh, in philosophy. Mm. And most of my publications have been in uh, have been uh, uh, philosophy in in the narrow sense. Mm. Um, and one thing that I'd like to understand, and one thing that seems to be uh, unique about your uh, relationship to philosophy is that it it wasn't something that you studied at university in a you know up to a PhD level, which seems to be this unfortunate trend in philosophy, where you know the only kind of time you're given a platform is if you've kind of studied at a university for your entire life. So h- how did you end up publishing in philosophy and kind of engaging with the philosophical community? Well, I'd always been preoccupied with philosophical questions and had always been writing about philosophy ever since the age of 17. Never a day without a line, nulla dies, sine linea, and so on. Um, but it took a long time for the things I was writing to add up to something that looked like a publishable book. I mean, just to cheer your audience, um, I wrote for 25 years before getting anything published, and I think I had 143 rejection slips. So, you know, uh, anybody who feels glum after 10 rejection slips should put it into context a bit. But I, I, originally, I wrote just lots and lots of notes. I wrote hundreds and hundreds, well, that's an exaggeration, many vast numbers of, of notebooks. But slowly but surely, they started, as it were, to crystallize into uh, particular themes. Um, interestingly, my early works of quasi philosophy were critiques of post structuralism and post modernism. Um, I had a particular animus against uh, Jacques Derrida and uh, Jacques Lacan. Um, and those books critiquing so called post Saussurean theory. Uh, were the first published books I had, uh, not so sure, and in defense of realism. Um, but in a way, that was an amazing digression provoked by irritation that academe was being dominated by bad philosophy and worse linguistics. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to see really good examples of bad philosophy, do embrace Lacan, do embrace Derrida. You'll never get better examples. Um, but for some reason, I think he, or both of them, had a dominant presence in the humanities broadly. They didn't make much, um, they didn't penetrate much within academic philosophy, but within other academic humanities, they had huge influence. They influenced people who didn't understand a word of what they were saying, or had any idea of how, what poor scholarship was being foisted on them. But that again is another story. It's an interesting story about academic fashions mm-hmm. um, yeah. mm. um, don't get me started i would have to say on that otherwise <laughs> you'll never be able to go home <laughs> fortunately i am home um so i don't know i don't have anywhere else to go um uh okay and i guess was it was it was it coincidence that um so you said that you had one hundred and forty three uh, rejection slips on things that were published. Um, was it chance that your your works on postmodernism and poststructuralism got published, or or was it something that you were especially um, 
I guess, passionate about at the time? Like, were you, you know, were you spending a lot of your time writing about these things? A bit under column A and a bit under column B. I mean, essentially, uh, I discovered when I was writing Not So Sure that I had a, a very clear-cut theme in which it was possible to present my arguments within the uh, standard uh, format of a work of scholarship, you know, footnotes, references, and so on. So in that sense, um, my polemics did seem to look like uh, works of scholarship as opposed to things that were rather more eccentric. Uh, so they were more conventional, in a sense. Uh, that's probably why they got accepted. Um, mm. Having said that, once I've had a couple of books accepted, then everything else written since then has been accepted. So it was really a, a, a turning point. It was interesting in a way writing about uh, post theory literary theorists, about postmodernism, poststructuralism, and so on, because these were not primary preoccupations. I mean, since I've been a child, I've been preoccupied by free will, mind body problem, and so on and so forth. And then these characters came along with their bad philosophy and worse linguistics, and they essentially blew me off course, but it still gave an opportunity to express some philosophical ideas, particularly ideas about the relationship between language and the world, uh, which I didn't otherwise have a platform for. Mm. Right. Um, and so I, in preparing for this interview, I listened to a bunch of other interviews that you had done and a bunch of other pres- presentations that you had done. And one of my favorites was um, the Desert Island Discs um, interview that you did in 2007. Um and one, one thing that you said that really resonated with me, one experience you described was this series of things that happened, this, this series of crises that happened when you were kind of in your adolescence, um, where, you know, you began to wonder, you know, how is it that I'm thinking? How is it that um, I'm putting all of these things together? How is it that I'm making decisions? And so on. Um, because I, I feel like I had a similar a similar decision, uh, sorry, a similar kind of experience um, in my early 20s um, where I, you know, began to almost felt like I was losing touch and began to question, you know, how is it that all of this stuff's happening? Um, so do you, one, one thing that I hope to achieve in philosophy is to, you know, think about these things that have, these questions that have bothered me. Um, and then continue, you know, new questions that I continue to have. And I'm wondering whether you feel as though, you know, your career in philosophy, all of these thoughts you've had, whether you have found solace or answers to, you know, the young Ray who was asking all of these questions. That's really interesting. I mean, you're quite right. In, in probably when I was 14 or 15, I was assailed by what I later discovered were respectable philosophical problems. Do we have free will or am I just being you know, the plaything of natural forces? I really worried about that. Uh, is the world I experience real? Sitting around at the you know, dinner table, watching, looking at all my brothers and sisters and parents, wondering whether this was all a dream. And that was a really very strong, worrying feeling. Um, so there was a lot of very serious worries, which I later discovered, good heavens, these are very respectable philosophical problems and have been, you know, investigated for thousands of years. 
and it was a great relief to discover that they could be addressed in in in, in that kind of way. Yeah, so, and I feel I, to some extent, have been true to those preoccupations. I mean, mm. my most recent book, which is coming out in September, is on free will, uh, and really, I hope my arguments will be accepted by my 14-year-old self. What my 14-year-old self wouldn't like is that the arguments are set out in, I hope, an organized way, that they have lots of footnotes and lots and lots of references. And I would have seen that as something of a dissent uh, from the direct experience of philosophical problems. But I think I could talk him, talk him round after, a, after a, a, a little while that the references and so on are Show respect to the reader. Mm, right. That was one dimension, a very negative dimension, but there was a positive dimension. Every now and then I would have an overwhelming sense of wonder and astonishment and joy that I am. And that sense of an explicit awareness of oneself is something that's never left me um, and also has been, as it were, increased the wattage of my interest in philosophical problems. Hmm. Right. Um, and it seems like, uh, it seems like these, especially that last thing you said, you know, the kind of, um, the magnificence and the, the kind of marvel of the, the human experience, um, this seems to be a common theme in, in your, in your work. Um, and I guess, uh, one, one thing that's very interesting about, about, um, uh, about your some of your views is that, um, so you know, as as science has developed over the course of history, um, we've had people, uh, we've had the the kind of rise of materialism, um, especially in philosophy of mind, the view that you know the, uh, oh well, you know that that the brain and the mind are you know this the same thing the brain is contained in the mind and you can you can map once you map the brain you know you'll have access to the workings of the mind and consciousness and this thing um and my kind of initial knee-jerk reaction to that was one of fear that it was undermining the kind of magnificence and the marvel of the human experience by trying to say that it can be contained in you know scientific investigations and inquiry um so I guess my question for you is, so you've, you've been a doctor, you're a doctor for a very long time. Um, and there would have been a lot of scientific inquiry in your work. And so I'm wondering how you were able to balance, you know, the kind of feeling of marvel and, um, and magnificence about the human experience with the kind of the quest for truth or for finality um, or objectivity and this kind of thing. Gosh, what an interesting question. I mean, there has always been a tension of myself as a doctor and myself as a philosopher. Sometimes that tension has been a very homely level. For example, uh, you know, I can question what does it mean to say cardiac arrest ward seven? How does that work? Suddenly my bleep goes off and somebody says cardiac arrest ward seven. I'm on, running down the corridor, you know, straight away. So the, in, in, in many ways, a lot of philosophical inquiry is suddenly pushed to one side when uh, something inverted commas serious happens uh, you know n- nobody is a solipsist running for a bus uh, or and you know, nobody doubts the reality of the external world when they've been up all night with a child that's been howling and so on and so forth and so there is this feeling that 
um, philosophical inquiry, as it were, can only flourish in very privileged and special situations. Now, of course, some philosophers have overcome that. You know, Socrates famously sat down in the snow for two days and thought about various problems near in the middle of some military campaign he was involved in. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but on the whole, we require a rather privileged situation to pursue philosophical inquiry. And that there is a tension, uh, I guess, between the medical viewpoint on the one hand and the sort of philosophical viewpoints I would like to develop on the other. I mean, you would think as a medic, one would be inclined to materialism. I mean, as it happens, I, I, I believe we are embodied subjects. For me, Merleau-Ponty has expressed our strange nature, and that isn't identical with materialism. But the, the, the fact remains is there's a great pressure when you're thinking um, as a medic, as one does, to think of people in some way as seriously identical with what's going on in their bodies, even more so with what's going on in their brains. Um, all my research was in neuroscience. Um, I think I can sort of sort that out. For me, the body, and in particular the brain, is a necessary condition of being a person. But being a person isn't the same as being a brain. Brain activity is, is not an explanation of what we are. And we can talk about intentionality and joint intentionality, all those things that distances us uh, from the material stuff we are made of. But there's certainly a significant tension there. I had an infinitely patient tutor when I was doing physiology at Oxford, Roy Kay, and we used to argue endlessly about vision. Is visual experience identical with activity in the visual cortex? He said yes, I would say no. And of course, um, there are good reasons for saying no. We might want to talk about those. Mm. As a medic, I was very aware particularly doing, um, focusing on neurological problems, that there was a difference between what was going on in the person in pathological terms and what was going on in the person's life. Epilepsy was my, one of my major research interests. And there is a profound difference between having an epileptic fit, which is identical with brain activity, and actually being a person who has seizures, who actually tries to work out what's happened, goes to a doctor to take advice, decides whether or not to tell their employer, cooperates with the tablets or decides not to cooperate with the tablets. There's such a distance between the seizure and the person who has epilepsy um, that, that, that really it's important not to uh, not to overlook that. Hmm. Um, and you mentioned before that, you know, when you hear uh, cardiac arrest in Ward 7, um, you know, the, you, there's there's going to be that there, there are going to be some times where philosophical inquiry, um, you know, is going to need to be put to the side, and you're going to need to, you know, just kind of respond uh, and take and trust that you know um, that the world is real and that you know the what you're being presented with isn't. Um, you know, some kind of web of deceit or something like this. Um, and one thing that I'm, one thing that I worry about often is how do we know when to, in, 
when to pursue philosophical inquiry? How do we know which instances are the instances where we should prioritize philosophical inquiry? And how do we know which instances are the instances where we should kind of, you know, put our ruminating to the side and and respond to the world? Um, because it's it seems like in your life, there have been these two different parts, you know, as a doctor, there are, you're going to have to kind of put philosophical inquiry to the side and you know, save someone's life. But as a philosopher, you can afford to, you know, sit down at your desk for 12 hours and just like, you know, pick, pick the world apart. So how, how do you, how do you draw the line between these two things? It's interesting going when, whether one has to draw the line, um, clearly in some instances one has, one certainly has to draw the line when philosophy is driven by doubt. No. Am I dreaming? And so on. No, you're not dreaming. You're on call. And by the way, there's somebody in Ward 6 who's pretty poorly and you better, you know, get moving. Uh, but in, in a way, I've always been um, uncertain as to what philosophy is trying to do. One is, of course, uh, it is driven by doubt. Doubt makes things visible. It increases the wattage of consciousness and so on and so forth. But perhaps... Um, it may also be trying to explain things and bring things together that are otherwise separated. You know, Wilfred Seller's famous description of philosophy is an attempt to see how things in the wider sense hang together in the wider sense. And, and, and that, in a way, isn't necessarily driven by doubt, although doubt may be something that makes things visible. There's also description. I mean, you may remember in Strawson's Individuals, he distinguishes between explanatory, uh, sorry, revisionary and descriptive metaphysics. So revisionary metaphysics may say, well, actually, we don't encounter material objects, they are constructs out of our mental experiences. He would say, no, let's just look at what are the assumptions built in to our everyday experience. What's the conceptual geography of our ordinary beliefs? So there is a very important aspect of philosophy that is descriptive rather than revisionary. But to me, the most important, and this is where philosophy spills over into fiction and into poetry and so on, is philosophy as celebration and to rejoice in the sheer complexity of the world. That's why quite a lot of the books I've written are, are descriptive. I mean, we are embodied subjects, but I've written a book on the, on the hand, a trilogy on the hand and all the things the hand gets up to. A book on the head, all the things the book the head gets up to. A book on the index finger, because in many ways, one way of philosophizing is to describe as if from the standpoint of a Martian, what we none of us doubts, uh, the world as it appears to us, its sheer overwhelming complexity, and to link it with other aspects of the world. And that, that seems to me that kind of celebration is a way of, of doing philosophy. It's where philosophy spills over a little bit into poetry published quite a lot of poetry as well. Um, so in, in, in that sense, yes, clearly you cannot, you cannot be serious, as it were, when uh, you're questioning the outside world and you're on call with a bleep in your pocket. There's absolutely no question of being serious. But that doesn't in any way undermine the desire to make more visible the world that you take for granted. Mm -hmm. I think perhaps doubting is the wrong thing to do, but untaking the taken for granted seems to me to be one of the great drivers of, of philosophy. And that is compatible with being a responsible person, uh, discharging their duties in the world, 
and embracing the folk epistemology and the folk ontology of everyday life. Mm. That's a really that's a really beautiful response. Um, and I think it, it mostly answers the next question that I was going to ask, um, which was something about, you know, whether whether you have your own personal definition of philosophy um, and what the what the you know the purpose of philosophical inquiry is but i think you i think you covered it really nicely there um and yeah i think so far you know i'm i'm relatively early into my philosophical trajectory but one thing that i feel like i'm getting better at is untaking the taking for the taken for granted as you said before um yeah um Okay, but maybe I'll still ask you, maybe I'll still ask you that metaphilosophical question um, and, you know, how, how it's changed over time um, for you, um, because it sounds like it's been relatively consistent. You've always, you've been very preoccupied with, you know, the, what is free will? What is, um, you know, what, what is the nature of the external world? Um, uh, and so, so yeah, for you, I guess, maybe, it, yeah, for you, what is, what is philosophy? I think it is about making things visible, uh, untaking the taken for granted. And sometimes that will take the form of challenging our beliefs uh, or saying, well, hang on, let's look at the foundation for these beliefs. Um, it sometimes takes the form of problems. Um, the fact that many philosophical problems haven't been solved isn't itself a critique philosophy. They are just a means by which we can make the things we take for granted visible. And, and perhaps it's just a word on progress. I mean, the science I've been involved with, neuroscience, has progressed incredibly. I mean, since I was a, a medical student, I mean, functional magnetic resonance imaging wasn't even a twinkle in the eyes of my colleagues uh, back in the 70s and so on and so forth. Um, and so neuroscience has progressed extraordinarily. And if we look at how philosophy has, inverted commas, progressed during that period, there's a very striking difference. David Chalmers wrote a very interesting paper um, comparing progress in philosophy with progress in mathematics. He looked at the 20 or 40 odd questions that David Hilbert set out in 1900 as the main problems uh, to be addressed by mathematicians. And a very significant number of them have been solved solved in the sense that there is now a consensus as to what the answer to them is. We look at philosophy, consensus seems as remote as it ever was. You know. Perhaps sometimes 50 or 60 percent of people will be materialists, but there'll still be plenty of dualists and plenty of, plenty of idealists and so on and so forth. But I don't think that is a criticism of philosophy. I mean, there is a sense in which philosophy is about being awake. And you may say, what's the point of being awake? Well, it's an end in itself. Right? What's the point of being in love? It's an end in itself. And in many ways, philosophy is also a love relationship to the world. Heidegger, on whom I wrote a monograph, although I disagree with a lot of his views and certainly his political views, he, he, his, his last words were said to be, Gedanke, thank you. And he said that to think is to thank. You know, Gedankenist, Gedanken. And in many ways, that is something that's quite fundamental to philosophy, a sheer grateful delight in the complexity of the world, made visible by, by, um, by reflecting on it 
And it's interesting, I'm a secular humanist, but you can think of one of the central things in religion is the so-called Eucharist, which is in the Greek, thank you, Evkaristo. So it, in that sense, a feeling of astonished gratitude is a very important part of philosophy. How did we all get together to produce artifacts? How did we all get together uh, to have our institutions? And to step back and look at the long and winding journey that leads to our present historical era um, in terms of the ideas that may have informed it. So I guess philosophy is, 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 is very much about delight in the world. And um, okay, there are problems that Plato put forward that haven't been resolved, uh, or there are problems that, um, you know, Zeno set out which people think they've found solutions to, but perhaps they haven't. Um, people say, hmm, my gosh, you know, when are you going to produce some results, you chaps and ladies? And the answer is that's the wrong, wrong approach. Science is about results, of course. And perhaps I'd be very interested, if we have an opportunity, to talk about, say, the relationship between neuroscience and, and philosophy of mind, because that's, for obvious reasons, been a, a uh, long-standing preoccupation of mine. Hmm. Yeah, well, pl well, please, would you, what, I guess, what is the relationship between neuroscience and philosophy of mind, and where do you fit into it? I'm very troubled, I would say, is the relationship. Um, and just to reiterate something I said earlier, it seems to me that um, what happens in the brain is clearly a necessary condition of um, even the most elevated thoughts, the most complex propositional attitudes. Um, so if you chop my head off, I stop thinking. End of story. Um, and if you damage my brain sufficiently, I lose a lot of those capacities uh, right down to consciousness itself. So there's no doubt about it. The brain is a necessary condition of consciousness and in all its manifestations. But then to conclude from that that what goes on in the brain is identical with consciousness and to conclude also that we will understand consciousness more by peering more and more into the intracranial darkness. That, I think, is the mistake. That's the difference between neuroscience, highly respectable, and neuromania, which is something I take great exception to, the idea that we will really understand our minds better when we understand the brain better. I often offer people a thought experiment. What would total understanding of the brain consist of? Let's suppose we could record everything that happens in someone's brain over a three-month period. How's about that? What would we get out of that? Well, you have to ask at what level you're doing the recordings. And one obvious level is the level of individual neurons. So after three months of investigation, out comes 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, thousands and thousands, billions, trillions of um, data indicating whether neural activity is or a neuron is active or inactive. Clearly, that would tell you absolutely nothing about the life, the experience or whatever that the individual had had in, in, in the three-month period. People often say, look, you're too impatient. We've only had things like functional magnetic resonance imaging, you know, since the late 1980s. Be a little more patient. Sooner or later, it's going to deliver an explanation of what love is, what aesthetic experience is, what, where we get our political views from, all that kind of stuff. And I would say, well, no. What? Tell me what advances in fMRI are going to cast light on the nature of love or the nature of aesthetic experience. 
And the answer is, they don't know. Mm. I have a great lot of fun with some of the uh, claims that are made about explaining love and aesthetic experiences. Um, can I go on a bit? <laughs> it's all right. I'm thinking there's some experiments by a, uh, a quite an eminent neuroscientist. I, I, you know, for the sake of his family, I won't share uh, his name. Um, but basically, he has the idea that you can understand what love is by doing the following experiment. You get some subjects and you put their head into a fMRI machine, head still attached to the rest of the body. You put the head into the fMRI machine and you get them to see, first of all, pictures of just friends. And then pictures of people whom they're madly in love with. You look at the neural activity in, under both conditions and you subtract one from the other. And that subtraction sum shows you what is distinctive about love. And you find this activity in one particular area, another particular area, and so on and so forth. What do you think? Gosh, not even a Martian would, would mis mistake that for love. Love isn't a response to a stimulus. It isn't in a sort of standing state, like feeling a bit chilly over a few, you know, few hours. It's actually a very, very complicated experience. C.F. Proust's A la Recherche de Tom Perdue, 12 volumes. It includes not being in love at that moment, it includes having imaginary conversations, it includes lust, and so on and so forth. Millions and millions of things. Um, but that gives you some idea of how the neurological approach to fundamental aspects of the human person is completely misconceived. Right. And so where does that leave where does that leave you? If because because I I agree with you. I think that um that 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 study that you mentioned just before um where you subtract the fMRI scan of one person's brain from from another and that that's supposed to leave you with love. You know, I guess that sounds like a horribly horribly reductive and um, I guess, you know, kind of empty description of what love is and could be. Um, and I guess you mentioned Merleau-Ponty before, you know, the, the Merleau-Pontian in me is going to want to think about, you know, embodiment and, you know, the kind of multitude of, of things that are happening at every moment, which constitute, you know, the, the embodied experience. Um, but where does that leave? If, if your claim is that that fMRIs and perhaps science um, in general won't be able to account for something like love in objective terms. Um, where does that leave? Where does that leave you? Is is that your claim that it can't account for things like love and that you know we should appreciate love for what it is? Or do you go a step further and try and say, you know, I actually have an answer for what for what this experience is? I don't think I have a single answer, but one answer would be read A la Recherche de Tom Perdue or read Anthony Trollope's novels. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a, an extraordinarily, it's a many splendored and a many misery thing. And the only way to capture it is through people's reports and descriptions. So I think in that, in that sense, uh, one's using the wrong instrument. Um, it's a bit like trying to determine, I'm trying to think, do a biopsy of the soul. Well, it doesn't, the soul isn't susceptible to biopsies in that sort of way. Not that there is a soul, but if there was one, you know, to look at the number of love receptors and count them and so on, it sort of wouldn't deliver anything that's of interest. In particular, it doesn't deliver anything that, I mean, there is some quite 
found uh, things that are missing in the fMRI approach. Um, intentionality, of course, is clearly not something that can be detected uh, by observe, observing the behavior of matter, nor can tensed time. I mean, as you know, tensed time doesn't have any presence in um, uh, or cannot be accommodated in the physics of time. Phys uh, uh, physical time is, is tenseless, but of course tensed time is absolutely central to the kind of creatures we are. At any given moment we are drawing on an explicit past, which we are aware of as past, and we're pointing to a possible future, which we are aware of as being in the future. So tensed time is absent uh, in the material stuff of the brain. Behind that, of course, is, is the big gap between subjective experience on the one hand on objective observation on the other. Uh, and in particular, the reduction in objective observation of things to numbers, reducing the world to a system of magnitudes. I mean, this, this is a, a gap that cannot be closed, nor would you expect it in principle to be closed. Hmm. Yeah, and and this makes me this makes me wonder and worry about the uh, the amount of attention and resources and time and energy that's going towards projects which assume that that this gap between subjective experience and objective observation is going to be able to be overcome or or solved. For example. Uh, Elon Musk has this um, thing called the Neuralink. I'm not sure whether you've heard of it. Um, I haven't. No. no. Oh, well, you've you've dodged a bullet, Ray. This would be um, a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> this would be a nightmare for you. <laughs> um, but essentially, it's this uh, this this uh, chip that he thinks is going to be put in in the mind um, that's going to you know have a, have a whole range of of consequences. Um, and, you know, is essentially, according to him, going to be able to, you know, kind of produce new experiences by, you know, stimulating the parts of the brain that are responsible for the production of those experiences. So you can see how, you know, it seems like this is relying on the idea that if you have an MRI, an fMRI scan of someone who's falling in love, you know, you put this chip in your head, you press a button, and then you, you have the experience of falling in love. Um, but I guess I'm I'm confused why why so many people uh, believe that this obstacle can be overcome the gap between subjective experience and objective observation. Um, I guess it, it makes me wonder whether this is just you know how science manifests its its kind of radical energy and its kind of drive to try and solve and answer everything and. You know, I guess I, I wonder what it's going to take for this project, the kind of the project of answering, of solving, of bridging subjective experience with objective observation. I wonder what it's going to take for that to end and for people to say, OK, we're not we can't do this. It, it, yeah. Yes. And, and, and how many failures it's going to require. I mean, it is interesting. I mean, for a start, the prestige of science is totally justified. The medicine I delivered in my 40 years as a doctor was massively more effective than the, than the medicine delivered you know, in the previous century. And that's because of science. I mean, the power of science, 
both to predict what might happen and to manipulate outcomes is absolutely staggering. I mean, the fact that I can talk to you in Australia without even raising my voice uh, is absolutely astonishing. You know, and when you think of what's involved in that, I mean, alchemy doesn't even begin to get near it. So the power of science is extraordinary and it has appropriate justification. Our life expectancy, our health expectancy, our fun expectancy have all been transformed by science. I guess what that, that prestige then spills over into areas where it really doesn't, shouldn't be. And that includes confusing science with metaphysics that science, um, as it were, will give us the answer to questions that really they lie completely outside of its cartilage. Um I, I think that's the problem. Um, and you can understand how within the humanities there's a, a desire to get on board the science uh, bandwagon. Science seems, A, respectable, respected in the outside world, B, observations made in science are replicable. And C, my gosh, the grants are fantastic. And um, if you think about, supposing you're into aesthetics and you want to know what the experience of reading Shakespeare is, well, let's get a scientist on board and do some MRI scans while people are reading Shakespeare. Gosh, suddenly our grant goes up from 30,000 to 300,000. The vice chancellor will be jolly pleased. So there are all sorts of reasons why people want to embrace science in areas where perhaps it has little uh, to contribute. I mean, the example I've just, in my mind, there's an example of studies done using fMRI scans on people's response to Shakespeare. And one example is the use of um, Shakespeare's use of a particular uh, figure of speech. It's called um, functional shift. And there's a line, a famous line in Coriolanus, where Coriolanus says, he godded me, and where god is used as a verb rather than as a noun. That's a functional shift. Well, there are some studies which have put people's heads in MRI scans and looked at what happens uh, when they read this line, or this line is read to them, and they get a particular spike, a uh, particular wave. One of those I studied a lot in, in EEGs. Um, when this stuff was presented to me, I pointed out you'll get this way whenever there's a surprise. For example, when you tread into, in, into some dog dirt by accident. So it doesn't really capture what is unique about Shakespeare, um, because you get the same experience, whatever surprises you. So, um, but nonetheless, the grants were much bigger, massively bigger. And there was this feeling, instead of having subjective claims of uh, literary critics, we were suddenly having things that you know, people could check. You see it, I see it, so it must be real. Mm. So there are lots of reasons why science um, has um, been so influential in defining the ways we ought to approach an, um, a general understanding, whether it is of literature or indeed of our brains or indeed of our stomachs. And it seems like philosophy uh, is fo is following a similar-ish path to science in its quest for at least academic philosophy. Uh, you know, I, I've been I haven't been alive for 
I guess, long enough to really see the changes in the discipline of philosophy. But from what I've heard, you know, we've gone from the 20th century, we had, you know, big continental philosophers, Heidegger, you know, the the French existentialists, then there were um, your best friends, the postmodernists. And then, you know, in Australia, you're going to be hard pressed to find many subjects on you know, continental philosophy on stuff that isn't, that doesn't feel or have the kind of aura of being measurable or accessible. Like, you know, a lot of ethics is applied ethics. You kind of, you know, you, you observe it in the world. You say, you know, one of Australia's most famous philosophers, Peter Singer, you know, he kind of made a career off this idea that, you know, the right thing to do is what's going to you know, minimize suffering and maximize pleasure. And that's something that we can observe in the world. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm wondering whether philosophy is also guilty of this, this move away from, you know, kind of... Uh, or this movement towards more measurable things um, and whether it might be coming at a cost. And I guess the cost might be you know, the rest of the humanities, because, you know, I guess in all Western countries, the humanities are being slowly um, eroded by cuts. Um, so, yeah, I'm wondering whether you have any thoughts about this. Yes, it's interesting. Isn't it? I mean, there are areas in philosophy where clearly uh, there's been, in my opinion, a malign interaction with science. Clearly, metaphysics, um, the philosophy of mind is a good example. But the philosophy of time, I read a great fact. 720-page book on the philosophy of time, which was an attempt to extract time from the jaws of physics. And the notion is, if you really want to understand time, you ought to listen to what Einstein said. Well, it's interesting. I don't think Einstein, at the end of his life, felt he understood time. He said he didn't even understand the nature of measurement. Um, but the reduction of time to little t, um, really, uh, which is one of four dimensions, uh, actually loses most of what matters about time uh, in our in our lives. Um, so uh, th- th- there, there is a tendency, if you really want to know the fundamental stuff of the world, what matter is, ask a physicist, or it, uh, um, if you want to know how the world unfolds, ask, ask about the physics of time and so on. And that's a very good example of what Susan Stemming really described as confusing uh, the world with the physical world and the physical world with the world of physicists. And I think there's plenty of space outside uh, the science of time and of other fundamental dimensions of our life uh, for philosophers to work independently. Um, there's still the guilty feeling that if you don't understand quantum mechanics, you really shouldn't be starting to you know, write about metaphysics. But I don't agree with that. Um, maybe because my understanding of quantum mechanics is not as deep as it, as, as it should be. But there's an, an, another example where philosophers uh, almost have thrown in the towel and said, we really need to wait for what scientists are going to tell us about these things. Um, but if you look closely at science, and I do as a you know friendly observer, uh, there is so much within science that is baked into its presuppositions that need to be made visible. If, uh, if we're going to uh, in any way think that science is going to do our metaphysical work for us. 
The other area is the notion of experimental philosophy. And, you know, one of the areas is people look at the famous trolley problems and see what the responses are to subjects uh, when presented with various trolley scenarios. And um, it seems to me that this experimental philosophy isn't really experimental philosophy at all. It's simply, if you like, the social psychology of people's judgments of various situations. Um, you mentioned Peter Singer, obviously a truly admirable man. And I wonder whether, in a sense, and you may perhaps correct me on this, but his embrace of utilitarianism, yes, the consequences of embracing utilitarianism mean that you have to do your philosophic calculus, your calculus of happiness and unhappiness, pain and pleasure. But I, I don't think, does he feel that his embrace of utilitarianism is itself science-based? I don't think he would, would he? Um, no, 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 I don't. I don't. I don't think so. No. So, so in that sense, I don't think he can be accused of scientism in in in, in that sense. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I. I think w- maybe what I maybe what I meant was that I feel like there is there has been a movement, and ma- maybe maybe you'll be able to shed some light on this because. In the in the 20th century, it seemed like there was, you know, there was a lot of ontology going on. People trying to, you know, explain what the nature of being is, trying to make claims about truth not being this tangible thing. Um, and maybe what I meant by maybe what I tried to say by bringing Peter Singer up was that maybe philosophy is trying to, maybe philosophy has become a lot more tangible. Um, and in becoming more tangible and applicable to the real world, uh, I think it it almost feels like there is this there is a neglect or a lack of attention being paid to the mystical and to the marvel, and there is just you know it's all about being pragmatic and efficient. It's about coming up with theories that will very easily tell us how many units of pleasure this is going to have how many units of pain this is going to have so yeah i think i think maybe that's what i meant before um yes i mean you, you may be right but i still think that the, the calculation takes place downstream of the original decision to embrace say utilitarianism versus virtue ethics or or ontology in 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 that sense um it's probably not quite as contaminated as scientism it's interesting you've mentioned um ethics and one of the interesting well, one of the things that i found as a doctor that ethical discussions at the at the level of philosophy didn't help me now is it appropriate we should switch off the ventilator from mrs smith at four o'clock in the afternoon and all the sort of thoughts that were going through my mind and the team very few of them would be sort of saying now how would this fit with virtue ethics hmm. do you think from a utilitarian point of view hmm. On the other hand, would you know? Should we universalize this decision? You know, it, it basically it, it didn't play into our preoccupations in that sense. We brought to it the sort of common sense of a six-year-old or a ten-year-old, or just the you know average person in the street, in that sense. And that was a kind of quite disappointment that um, philosophical ethics and meta-ethics doesn't take you all the way to individual decisions. I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise, really. 
I mean, one of the things I found was that um, in medicine, you're always having to dichotomize across a continuum. You know, is this right? Is that wrong? Where do we move from right to wrong? I mean, beyond medicine, there are good examples. You know, what is free speech and what is hate speech? Well, there's no obvious point of uh, dichotomizing. Well, we have to dichotomize, but there is no justifiable point of division. Or when it came to, say, decision about abortion, I happen to support abortion on on demand, um, as long as it's the person's genuine decision. But we don't like abortions after 24 weeks or 22 weeks. Is that something rooted in a large ethical consideration about what is a person and so on? The answer is no. It's about the statistics or the likelihood of the fetus surviving after a particular time. So you've got to you build into it something purely probabilistic or statistical. It doesn't sound terribly, um, terribly philosophical in a way. So that that's an area where yet another area where philosophy seemed to be at a distance from the West of my life when it came to medical practice. Yeah, and I I'm really interested in in the experience of feeling like, uh, feeling like when you have to make a kind of a big a big decision. What ends up happening is that you're returned to the logic of of a six year old, um, and I guess there have been you know I, I can I I have had experiences like that um, you know where there's immense pressure and I feel like all kind of ethics and stuff aren't aren't things that I'm consulting. Um, I'm wondering whether whether firstly whether you think science could shed any light on this on kind of or whether you know about i don't know too much about decision making and decision theory and this kind of stuff um so that's my first question um and then i'm also wondering whether you have your own theory about this about why ethics can't can't account for or, or isn't something that is at the forefront of our thinking when we are you know, trying to evaluate whether or not to turn off a ventilator or turn off life support. I think two reasons. One is ethical principles are very, very broad indeed. And then we have to do all the work to bring them to bear on situations which almost by definition are unique. Now, when we're thinking about switching off the ventilator for Mrs. Smith, we think about Mrs. Smith and all the very specific circumstances of her illness, etc., etc. So in a way, your general principles, in virtue of being general, do not deliver that very singular decision. I think that's probably the, 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 the main reason. Also, sometimes, of course, ethical principles are genuinely in conflict. I mean, in medicine, for example, we have the principle of um, respecting the autonomous wishes of the patient, respect for autonomy. You as the patient, have absolutely the, the last word on what should be your treatment. But against that, you have the notion of best interest. And sometimes, as an inverted commas expert, I may have a better idea of your best interest. So if you're following, you know, uh, going through grim treatments for hopeless long odds and demanding more and more treatments, you are expressing your autonomy but I feel I'm not respecting your best interests by endlessly you know, feeding you with, let's say, chemotherapy when you know, it's just making your life hell and essentially it's not going to prolong your life much. So there's, 
there, there are conflicts within um, even principles less general, general, for example, the principles of medical ethics. They are in, in, in conflict. And uh, they've been arrived at by a separate history, respect for the individual. Um, on the one hand, you as an agent who have a right to decide what's right for you. On the other hand, me as a professional who have a duty to make very clear and possibly to advocate what I think is right for you. And I think there's quite a, a serious conflict. We've seen some very poignant cases, you know, parents who have children born with appalling, progressive, miserable conditions, wanting everything done and refusing ever to give up. And as a doctor, you can think only this poor little thing is going through hell only to go through more hell on the way to an early extinction. And you feel sorry for the parents because they don't want to give up this child to them as unique and so on. And you can see the lack of uh, resolution there. And I don't know whether philosophical ethics gets you anywhere near the resolving those kinds of things. Hmm. Hmm. It's quite, quite interesting. In, in the UK, we've often had some very distinguished philosophers on commissions looking at, say, abortion or drugs or whatever, and they've made very useful inputs. Um, Bernard Williams, in particular, they may be familiar to, um, but I suspect his inputs probably were fantastic common sense rather than what he brought from his knowledge of you know, Kant versus uh, Jeremy Bentham. Uh, uh, hmm. Yeah, that's the 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 last thing that you said, the idea of the philosopher as finally being given the power to to you know comment on on the way society should operate always brings a smile to my face. Um, but yeah, it's very it's very it's very interesting because I actually think I haven't thought about the the ways in which ethics is very problematic and that ethics falls short or that philosophy can fall short because you know it tries to provide general theories that that don't um, give us instruction for very specific examples um, and I'm wondering whether this whether you've ever felt this way about free will um, whether you have felt like coming up with a, a general theory of free will um, I'm not sure what the contents of your new book is, but I'm I'm wondering whether you know you, you feel like philosophy of mind runs into the same problem as ethics when it tries to come up with overarching theories, or if if it tries to come up with overarching theories about the nature of of um, you know intention, free will, determinism, and so on. Yes, I think that's an easier one. It just seems to me that we arrive at the conclusion we don't have free will from overarching theories. You know, we say actions are material events. Every material event has a prior cause that has a prior cause. And we go back to the Big Bang when I wasn't there. So I haven't chosen my action or that every physical event in the universe is subject to the laws of nature. Um, so they're very general objections to free will. In other words, free will seems uh, impossible in theory, but we know some things, events in our lives are chosen and some are not chosen. So actually, in practice, we do believe the difference between, say, my falling down the stairs having a seizure on the one hand and walking down the stairs in order to go into the car 
to catch a train, to go to London, to go to a meeting. There's clearly something different between uh, those two things. And so it, it, um, teasing out what the differences are and how they are possible, how free actions are possible in an apparently causally closed physical world, in an apparently entirely law-governed physical world, I think it, that it seems to me okay. I can then come to the conclusion that free will is possible in principle. My own view is that, um, for example, one can look critically at the notion of cause. I have a whole chapter on humiliating causes. Um, 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 they would Hume uh, clearly looked very critically at the notion of cause, and I take that criticism much further. But if we look at the idea that uh, all events in uh, the world are law-governed, you say, hmm, that's interesting. Are you sure you don't mean that nature has certain habits? And then somehow you're able to stand outside of those habits to extract from them certain laws. I mean, if we are utterly, utterly uh, subject to the laws of nature, isn't it amazing how we came to see them? You know, if we were soluble fish, we'd hardly could become oceanographers. And it's the fact that we are able to be distant from the world sufficiently to manipulate it to reveal those laws indicates something about a more general distance we have from the world by which we manipulate it. And I've whole section basically uh, looking at experimental science. What an extraordinary thing it is. And I don't look at quantum mechanics and all the things that uh, philosophers find sexy. I look at Boyle's law. Now, how did Boyle, who himself, as he was getting more and more angry with his equipment and was breathing faster, his chest obeying Boyle's law, was nonetheless actually available able to see those laws. So in other words, one can, it's quite appropriate to produce theories that defend free will against theoretical attacks on it, or defend what we ordinarily believe in everyday life. You know, you did this and you'll be answerable for it. Um, so in, 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 in that sense, where it doesn't take us is to say at what point you should be held responsible for certain things and not responsible for others. At what point you should say, well, it's your upbringing, or you had a brain tumour, all of those things, they are much more difficult. But at least we can establish in principle there is the possibility of the difference between a genuinely free action produced by an agent and a mere succession of events that passes through the body of a person, of an individual. Yeah. And I guess, I'm not sure if... It if this is an unfair question, but what what is the, if possible, what is the the thesis of of your book? What what is the the claim or claims you're trying to make about or against free will or for free will? But essentially, that there is an important sense in which we stand outside of nature, uh, not in a dualist Cartesian sense. I don't believe in simple ontologies. But and, and that is illustrated brilliantly in the laboratory, where we actually do things like um, separating controlled from uncontrolled variables, like controlling um, sources of noise. All these things we do in a laboratory in order to reveal to ourselves those laws which we believe are an expression of the habits of nature. I'm very suspicious of the very notion of laws of nature. I actually separate the habits of nature Hersian term from the laws of science. But the very fact that we can do that in a laboratory indicates that we are at a certain distance 
from nature that enables us to reveal its general principles. And that distance is something we tend to overlook when we think science has shown that we are utterly part of nature. As I said, if we were really soluble fish in the ocean, it's hardly unlikely we could become oceanographers. And we are. And we, we are extraordinary creatures. I mean, think of this. Which other bit of the universe puts the universe in inverted commas and gives it a name? Which bit of matter says matter? So clearly there's something very, very strange about us that isn't totally assimilated into uh, the material world, the so-called law-governed material world. We are not, the very fact we look for handles to manipulate things shows that we're not simply causally wired. And I have to say the manipulative theory of um, causation first was first put forward, in my knowledge, by an Australian philosopher, whose name I've forgotten for a moment, in 1955, a brilliant philosopher, um, the manipulative theory of causation. But essentially, we are strange creatures who can utilize and exploit the laws, utilize and exploit causal connections, quasi-causal connections, in order to shape the world. Again, the very fact that I'm talking to you thousands of miles away without raising my voice is just a marker of the extent to which we have A, revealed, and B, under exploit the laws of nature, or the laws of science, the habits of nature revealed through the laws of science in order to extend our agency. Right. Um, and I feel that those who deny agency because the laws of nature are so sort of unbreakable, I'd like to think, well, how did you get to know that? That's quite interesting. You know, did the, did nature suddenly say, by the way, mate, this is how I work? No, we actually had to, you know, engage with it in a, on our own terms. I mean, there are other bases for the argument. One of the things is, is an action only makes sense with respect to a future that is populated by explicit experiences of the past. And the way we put the elements of our actions together, they wouldn't fall together um, naturally. They're put together. So if I decide I'm going to become fitter by signing up to a gym, think of all the things I do. You know, make the phone call, pay my subscription, get the car out, drive to the gym, all those millions of things. They would never be stitched together naturally. What brings them together is a goal, a rather abstract goal. And that goal doesn't exist. It's a possibility. And so again, free will is about the realization of possibilities. And nature, and it's hardly a revelation to say this, doesn't contain any possibilities. It just consists of what is actually the case. Tend to time on the back of that. Yeah. Wow. Um, that that's a really that's a really a wonderful, really wonderful story that you've you've painted there um and i'm wondering i'm wondering whether this means that you think that as humans we have diverged in some way in some very profound way from our our ancestors um because we kind of you know Unlike, unlike many other animals, we have the ability to form goals. Um, we can kind of operate in this, you know, in the way that you described free will as this, this thing where 
you know, potentially we can have possibility that isn't something that is, that has happened yet. You know, it's this. So yeah, I'm wondering, I'm wondering what that means for, for who we are and what we are. Um, well, yeah. What do you think about that? An absolutely fundamental question. And that's really my central preoccupation because I, I don't have religious beliefs. So I don't understand this in supernatural terms, nor do I think we're just bits of nature completely fastened into the natural world. I think we are strange creatures who are extra natural. But because I'm not a creationist, um, I do believe that Darwin, Darwin's theories got stronger and stronger as more and more uh, technologies have looked at the fossil record, tectonic plate movement, carbon dating, and so on. So one has to be a good Darwinian unless one is bonkers, basically. So the question is, how do you reconcile being a good Darwinian with saying that we are so fundamentally different? Because if you look at us in terms of organisms, then you can see we're not massively different uh, from the great apes, uh, from our nearest primate kin, which are chimpanzees or whatever. So we have to explain uh, really how it is that we got to be so different. And any explanation must begin with biological difference. And in the rather fat thousand-page trilogy, which begins with the hand, I spell a very long just-so story, which begins in places which are very familiar. The utterly unique features of the human hand, the upright position which liberates the hand from being a locomotive prop to being something much, much more, the predominance of vision, which is a teleroceptor as opposed to smell and touch, all of those things really have put us on a completely different trajectory from the other primates. One of the challenges people say was actually other animals do have goals. I mean, think of a swallow setting off from Egypt and ending up in your house, which it did last year. My gosh, it's obviously got a very specific goal, which involves lots of movements because it could be blown off course by the wind on route and so on. I say, well, it no, doesn't any more have a goal than a drone does in that sense. It's basically primed to reach a certain target. It doesn't have to entertain that goal in order to arrive at it. Now, my goals have to be entertained by me because they're bespoke, they're unique to me. So my desire to go down to London to meet my mate, to make up for the row we had, that is entirely bespoke. And for that reason, it can't, as it were, be programmed. Uh, and and the, un, the the fact that our, our goals are individual, that we have CVs. Animals don't have CVs, you know, they just have life cycles. You and I have a CV, which we basically are aware of. We locate where we are at any moment in, in, in our life. So uh, that is a sense in which you and I have, have goals, which, say, even chimpanzees do. They don't even have... Uh, they don't have tensed time, for example, in the way that uh, we have tensed time. Um, and there is a story one could tell quite at quite length of how the sense of tensed time could could have have arisen. People have sometimes argued that non-human animals do have um, the ability for mental time travel. Um, Clayton and her colleagues looked at uh, scrub jays, but I think. There wasn't any evidence, in my opinion, that they shared that tense time. If I say I'm going to meet you on the 6th of August, wow, we are now, as it were, converging on a collective spot in a future. And that is not there uh, available to um, 
to uh, non-human animals. Nietzsche described uh, uh, human beings as the promising animal. And the fact that we make promises is quite different, makes us quite different from uh, other beasts, because, again, promises depend on tense time and also on the sense of the other as equal in some sense to oneself. Hmm. Well, um, does, has this given you, how does, how does developing these views and these, uh, developing this narrative, how has it, how has it made you, has it, has it made you feel differently about the kind of person you are? Um, because I guess, you know, the, the six-year-old Ray who is asking, you know, what free will is, you know, what is, what is this version of reality? Um, do you, do you feel like after, you know, after having put so much time and, and energy and resources into piecing together this amazing mosaic that you, I guess, what, what does that, what does that feel like? It's interesting, you've got to separate the satisfaction from leaving a contrail behind one. So, you know, you've got a pile of books, think, oh, well, and, you know, it'll be there in the archive. I've left my message in the bottle and so on. There's that kind of second order satisfaction at having got it out and got it read by some and so on. But I still feel that each day one's beginning again. um, And the book I'm writing at the moment is totally different. It's called Prague 22. And it's, um, uh, we have a lot of connection with Prague and we have a flat there. And there's a 22 tram that goes from, from our flat to the castle. And so there's an essay at each of the 15 stops to the castle. And in a sense, that's a desire just not to solve any problems, but to celebrate, uh, the complexity of the world. Mm. What does it mean when a mind encounters the city? What is an embodied subject doing, sweating its way up to the castle, and so on and so forth? So um, there's no feeling of job done, problem solved, and now I can die happy. I mean, a lot of people are sick of Raymond Tallis, but I can't get enough of him, frankly. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not ready to die yet. But it just seems to me that there's a... Have I made progress? I'm not sure. Do I see the world differently? Yes. I mean, I definitely felt haunted by the possibility of materialism and the implications in terms of free will and the meaninglessness of life. Now I feel there's a surfeit of meaning. Um, I can't remember when I was last bored. You know, boring, maybe, but bored, no. And that, that's the interesting thing. Life has got more and more and more interesting, um, which perhaps is one spin-off in philosophy. You know, it's, um, yeah. So it's a very unsatisfactory answer to your very good question. It's a sort of question that I sort of fear to ask myself in a way. And, um, yeah. Sorry. I mean, one thing I haven't cracked is mortality, and that's that's um, more than an irritation, uh, particularly when you're 74 or 174. I haven't been carbon dated recently, but something like that. And it just seems to me that um, you know. Uh, I'm waiting for the block of frozen urine to drop from the 747 at any time. And it just seems to me that um, that's something. I suppose I'm open-minded as possibility. Uh, I don't expect to see angels or the face of God or anything like that. No, no thank you. But um, I find myself more and more 
difficult to understand. Um, and, and of course, all these big problems have been left unresolved. The relationship between the brain and the mind, uh, you say it's a necessary but not a sufficient condition, but that's okay. So what's the gap? What fills the gap between the necessary and the sufficient? Mm-hmm. Try to do that. But so, um, as always, one seems to have an accidental journey in life. You start at a place you haven't chosen, and you end up at a place you don't choose, and you're then trying to turn that accident into something that looks retrospectively necessary. Um, but actually, the sense of contingency and accident still remains. You know, why did I write those books? You know, why was I born a contemporary of Derrida? You know, and got blown off course. That sort of thing. Um, so there is the feeling of unfinished and unfinishable business. I think that's really really helpful life advice um and i think i really hope i i listen to what to what you've told me because i think one one big source of i guess anguish in my life is you know the um kind of this idea that in the future i'll look back and you know i won't have kind of done what I hoped I was able to do or or this kind of thing. But I guess from what you've said, it sounds like, you know, that's not, that isn't really consistent with the way life operates. It isn't, you you know, having a plan, having a plan and expecting to be able to follow that plan doesn't really, doesn't really sound right. Um, There are too many kind of hiccups along the way and too much spontaneity. Um, now there's there's one there's one question that I've been thinking about for a while and and it's another worry of mine and it's that I think there might be and correct me if I'm wrong because I might just be wrong but I think there might be a difference between let's say my generation and your generation um and one one difference is that my generation was raised with technology um and technology is this wonderful thing you know lots of resources lots of answers but it's also an amazing source of distraction from from the marvels of life um and from you know the kind of you know you're you're a poet you like classical music you spend a lot of time thinking and writing but it's in my experience my limited life experience, it's very hard to make time for these kinds of things when, you know, there is just such an amazing uh, tsunami of information coming through social media and, and the computer and, and, you know, all these, all these devices that we have. So, yeah, I'm wondering whether, whether you feel, whether you feel optimistic that you know future generations are going to be able to kind of continue these the kind of the questioning necessary and and are going to be able to enjoy you know the kind of marvels and and wonders of life um because sometimes i i worry about myself especially gosh what an interesting question i mean there is a condition i've described as attenuation which is where you basically are attenuated by electronic elsewhere, the, the elsewhere that's everywhere. And I'm terribly aware of it. 
when I see the kids coming out of school and they're sort of all facing downwards on their screens, the moment they're freed from school, people on buses, um, you know, are, are endlessly not here. I, mean, I suspect people were not here when they were sitting brooding over things on a bus, but you couldn't see their not here-ness in the way you can if they're looking at a screen. It's difficult to know, isn't it? I sort of wonder whether this might peak and that people will suddenly, you know, have a hunger for more centeredness, more hereness, um, or just to be able to look at a flower or to think about things. I mean, having said that, there's the other side of it is the incredible richness that is available. I mean, I'm a great fan of Sean Carroll, the physicist. I, I, I don't know whether you ever listen to his podcasts. They are wonderful. Well, they would never have been available 20 years ago. So there is riches that come. Trouble is you can get an embarrassment of riches and you can get, of course, there is much more attenuated stuff, the endless tide of texts and Facebook and um, emails and so on and so forth and Twitter. Um, th that is a danger where you do get fragmented in, into little things. But I, I don't quite know where it's going to go. One of the interesting things is people still read books, apparently. I mean, book sales are going up at the moment. Um, so it's very difficult to read the tea leaves, isn't it? I mean, some people have been very apocalyptic about it, saying we're almost going to limit ourselves. You know, we're going to cease to be selves. Um, but the answer is I, I, I'm so little in touch with the very young generation. Um, mainly because I can't see my grandchildren in Prague and Berlin at the moment for obvious reasons. So in, in, in that sense, I don't know how pessimistic to be. You probably have a better handle on it than I would. I mean, your colleagues, say, studying philosophy, are still preoccupied, presumably, by the philosophical questions, even if they're having a sneaky look at their um, mobiles during the lectures and things. Yeah, I think I think they I think all of us are are preoccupied with these questions, but I think I, I am I am afraid of the way that technology infiltrates the mind um and and mostly i'm afraid of the way that it capitalizes on our attention um yeah and i guess i actually haven't thought about you said something very interesting which was you know if we think if we think about the way that you know pe perhaps it was the case that in the past people would brood you know, in a way that was visible and now people brood by being on their phones and whether there's going to be some big kind of, um, you know, some big resistance against technology and people are going to try and return to be centered. Um, and I wonder whether that's actually already happening with, with, you know, the kind of big rise of mindfulness and wellness and these things. Um, but I wonder whether it's happening in a profound enough way um, because at least I feel like the push for mindfulness and, and present and being present, the drive comes from being more productive rather than being more still. Um, so I'm not sure it's coming from the right place, but, um, yeah, I, I think I, I do share your ambivalence over this. Yeah. I mean, one has to say that, um, think of the history of humanity. Most people have been hungry or in pain most of their lives. So in that sense, hunger is less invasive than a mobile phone. Um, and less, uh, so uh, 
perhaps there's been in that way we are even despite the ubiquity of electronic media, social media, we're probably probably able to reflect more. But it's difficult to know, isn't it? There's no epidemiology that looks, as it were, of the history of the degree to which we people reflect on things. I mean, because um, after all, we only have the afterimage of past epochs, and that afterimage is largely structured and organized in the way that the experience of being in it is not. I don't believe you ever read Ulysses, James Joyce, um, and it's available on a CD. It's un, un, unreduced. It is a fantastic account of one day in the life of an individual, uh, mainly one individual, but it gives you a sense of what it's like being a mind and the total hell-mell chaos of being in a mind. And uh, if you like, our um, the fragmentation of our attention didn't require... Um, the uh, Google and et al. to to do that. We are intrinsically very fragmented. Um, we do have an uh, an exoskeleton from our jobs, our responsibilities, and so on. So you have a structured plan, but inside there, there is a little bit of um, well, near chaos, I would say. Well, Ray, we've covered we've covered a lot of ground, and I've taken up ninety minutes of your time. Um, well, it's been, so, so it's thank been you. a real pleasure, I must say. Gosh. Oh. Oh, well, thank <laughs> you. should have been a doctor. You, you should have been a doctor. You're a very good interlocutor, I have to say. Oh, and, right. you know, Yes, you, your dad would be proud of you because you nod at the right moment, which is very reassuring to the patient you know, <laughs> to show you're acknowledging. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm glad you were able to, to, to feel some kind of communication through, through the screen. I'm glad technology is making something possible. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, well, thanks so much for your time, Ray. I, I, I really appreciate it. You've been very generous. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. And thanks, Alex. And hopefully we'll communicate again. I oh, hope so. Thank you.